Hey, Peace Nicks. Today's guest is Michael Rosino. He is the assistant professor of sociology at Malloy College. His new book is Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics, and the Media. From that title, I don't think I should have to say much more. This guy's been really well-researched, educated on the drug war. We have a great discussion. I really enjoyed talking with him. I'm glad he reached out and wanted to be on the podcast. Uh, really cool conversation. And um, before we dive in, just some quick business. If you want to try a hemp cigarette that doesn't taste like shit, that's their slogan. Go to sugarcali.com, order some crim hemp cigarettes. They're tobacco-free. Great substitute for tobacco. They're actually really delicious. And enter the offer code PEACE15 to get 15% off, and it helps support the podcast. Also, if you use Kratom, if you already know about Kratom, then I don't have to explain much. If you don't know about Kratom, it might not be for you. There's a lot of um, things I'm supposed to uh, you know, not say and things that I can say, and I just feel like I don't want to push a product that someone might not need and then find that they end up with a, you know, becomes a, a habit that they don't, you know, they don't necessarily want, didn't necessarily need. I don't want to push something people don't need. So I'm leaving it up to the listener to look into what Kratom is, how it can help you, but mainly for people who already use it, go to happyhippoherbals.com. It's um, a really cool website. They got a mascot. It's a hippo. It's a happy hippo. All right. So go to happyhippoherbals.com and enter the offer code THEPEACE15 for 15% off your purchase. And they, uh, they also just sent me this whole big uh, package of different kinds of kratom, the red vein, ye- uh, yellow vein, they have um, uh, the green vein, manga, and they also have these really good like uh, kratom taffy that was really awesome. So a bunch of cool little stuff at the store. Check it out, happyhippoherbals.com enter the offer code the piece 15 to save 15 percent so today's guest once again with the book debating the drug war michael Rosino. america's public enemy number one in the united states is drug drugs are menacing our society Any thoughts on the drug problem i had a great time doing drugs so tonight from our family to yours from our home to yours thank you for joining us this is the piece on drugs. On drugs. Well, so uh, th- <laughs> thank you so much for doing this podcast. Um, so you are an no assistant professor of sociology at Malloy College? Yeah, that's right. And that's in New York City? Thanks for having me. Okay. Yeah, it's in it's in uh, Rockville Center, which is on Long Island, but I, I, I commute from Brooklyn. So yeah, Very I cool. live in the city. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. And thank you for sending me the book. I got a copy, the digital copy, and I've read, I've read some of it. I, um, I prefer, I ordered your book. It'll be here Friday. So I'm, I'm excited to read that. Yeah. I, um, and I, I love that you're doing that kind of work. It's so important. And, um, you know, I, I, and I have another book that I can reference because, you know, it's always the same <laughs> books. So my listeners are here. I'm either, it's either Johan Hari or the new Jim Crow. And there's like two others. And then, you know, so it's great to have more stuff to reference. I, I, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, anything you can do to get the word out. I'm always honored to be mentioned in the same same breath as as people like that. So yeah, no, that's an honor. And I think a lot of people feel the same way, like way too much screen time. So I mean, I'm the same way. I uh, I need a physical book too. So I totally get that. Yeah, but I, also I just got it last week. So I've read, um, I read through the introduction and gotten the first chapters and 
I already find it really interesting. Like for one thing I learned, I always, I love that when I read these kind of books that I, I constantly am reading the same subject matter now that I do this podcast, but no matter what, every book I'm learning new stuff. And mm-hmm. um, you brought up that the, cause we all know, or those of us that know about the drug war understand that racism really is at the heart of, of most of these things. And I didn't even, I didn't realize that alcohol prohibition, there was racism behind that and it was against the Jews. So mm-hmm. I learned something new there. Yeah, no, it's been interesting for me because I think, you know, I started off in the similar kind of place of curiosity as a lot of people. You know, I I grew up uh, in a situation where, like many young people, you know, I experimented with uh, recreational drug use. And uh, I've always been curious and fascinated kind of, you know, like I think a lot of people have this basic sense if they're peripherally involved in drug subcultures or maybe even just, um, you know, have been engaged with the the politics of it. It's like, it's very clear that the policies don't correspond with evidence. They don't correspond with reality. And I think until I really started doing this research, I didn't know, I guess, how far down the rabbit hole I could go with kind of uh, just how much yeah, racism, racial oppression, you know, social control of certain groups has been kind of, I guess I would call it like the animating logic of all of this. I mean, you know, I remember being a teenager and being like, you know, the basic uh, sitting through, you know, uh, commercials on TV or whatever and being like, okay, clearly uh, cannabis isn't that harmful compared to alcohol. You know, I've seen people have completely like horrible times blacking out and I've never seen anything compared to that with with a lot of other substances clearly you know there's some some hypocrisy there it doesn't really make sense but uh yeah you know it really took me getting this uh getting this project together getting my background in sociology to really put all the pieces together so it's been it's been a a really eye-opening experience for me as well even just kind of doing this work Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the things that people tell me they're surprised or learned for the first time, uh, I will have the complete humility of saying I also learned a lot of this stuff for the first time as I was writing the book. So I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that's coming across. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I, I started this podcast thinking I knew I understood the drug war. I understood uh, that it needed to end. I understood um, drug culture because I've you know been a part of it my pretty much since you know I was a teenager started smoking cannabis and then went to psychedelics. And, but once I started this podcast and started researching, there was so much I didn't understand. And one of the things that really opened my eyes was the fact that I thought I'd been really badly abused by the system because I'd been arrested for cannabis. I've been denied employment, but compared to what happens to a lot of minorities, I've had it really easy. And I just Mm -hmm. didn't see that because I didn't, you know, a lot of it's just kind of pushed under the rug. We don't see it. Absolutely. And I'll be interested you know, I don't know if, if we, you know, maybe we can chat again once you've read the book. I'll be interested to hear more um, what you think about this. But yeah, I think there's a lot of evidence that there are almost like two different tiers or two different tracks that people can kind of be put along. Both of them are fairly punitive, but um, all of the disparities that take place uh, kind of, you know, they kick in at almost every step in the process. So One thing that I found when I was doing my research for this book was I was able to find evidence for racial discrimination taking place at every single step of the legal system process. So, you know, it's obviously, you know, on principle, I think a lot of people would agree that 
taking a punitive approach to substance use across the board is dysfunctional and harmful. And I think there's a lot of people that, that definitely have that sense based on their personal experience or uh, their research and, and thinking about these things. But what, what's so interesting is that at every single step from arrests, getting charged, sentencing, pretrial diversion, uh, whether or not you, you qualify for a treatment program versus, um, you know, other types of things, whether or not you're, you're held, whether or not you receive bond and you can bail out. At every single step, there's research from sociologists and criminologists that's now demonstrating that your uh, racial category, whether or not particularly if you're Black or Latinx, that is the, it is a major factor that predicts how harsh the system is coming down on you. Even if we control mm -hmm. for what the type of offense is, even if we control for your income level, so it's not even purely a social class thing. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that more people are becoming aware of that because I've noticed that it does seem like um, even policy reform organizations are now taking that more seriously. When previously, I think a lot of the um, very well-intentioned drug reform advocates uh, tended to take kind of a colorblind approach and maybe even avoid talking about the racial disparities or wanting to acknowledge them. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good time to kind of be having this this conversation as well, given that. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I just wanted the punitive approach thing has just never worked. And, you know, they did it with crack. Um, they, they made crack, what, 100 times worse than mm -hmm. cocaine. And then Obama, the Fair Sentencing Act reduced it to 18 to one, which is yeah. why not just one to one or why not yeah. stop arresting people for it to begin with and start treating mm -hmm. people. But um, now you see the same thing happen with fentanyl. They're, they're going to mm -hmm. pass legislation to start heavily criminalizing fentanyl over other opiates. And they're, they're just missing the point of what's going on. They're not seeing the solution. And the solution is right in front of all of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that happens um, is the war on drugs represents uh, a moral panic. It represents mm -hmm. uh, certain people in society uh, wanting to demonize a certain other group of people. And in order to do so, you end up creating these institutions and these power structures that really take a deep-seated interest in maintaining these systems. So that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to achieve fundamental reforms is that, you know, to be blunt about it, there are very wealthy and powerful people who are concerned that their flow of uh, influence over the public, their ability to use the prison population for labor, their ability to, um, let's say for, for uh, police departments and DA's offices, their ability to um, get a huge budget that they use for um, engaging in these actions. Um, I think they see those as they see drug reform and even a, a sort of human rights centered uh, humanistic sort of approach as being fundamentally at odds with their interests. Uh, and that's one of the things that I really have had to grapple with as I've, I've thought more about this topic. And I'm sure it's something you've, you've grappled with as well is that, yeah, unfortunately it doesn't actually just come down to the evidence. It doesn't just come down to the more, you know, which side is more reasonable or what even might work to help people or solve the problems. It, it comes down to 
politics and it comes down to conflicts and conflicts of interest and power and all this other way more messy stuff that, um, you know, I think a lot of us would like to shy away from, but I think we're increasingly recognizing that that's actually how change happens. Um, so yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely appreciate what you're saying on that end. But no, you are right though. The reason that we're not moving in the right direction isn't only because we they don't understand the problem. It's it's these big groups. I mean, you have the DEA, which is this huge militarized police force that if if they solve the drug problem, they don't exist anymore. So they have no interest in actually doing their job the correct way. Yes, absolutely. And and even further to your point about um, you know, evidence and 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 you know, kind of I think there's a there's a a conversation that's had a lot of times among drug policy reform advocates, which is like, you know, we all like to say, hey, we know this. We know the, the truth because a lot of us have done our own evidence. A lot of us have personal experiences. And um, there is a long history of the federal government overtly ignoring um, re- reports and research and evidence on effective drug control strategies on the uh, psychological, biochemical and sociological impacts of different drug use, even going back to, um, you know, the LaGuardia report, which I believe was in the 1930s, they actually that was set up by the the mayor of New York at the time. And um, it was a panel of doctors and social scientists. And this is in the 1930s. And they uh, advocated in the report that um, cannabis should be legalized, that it should be treated, um, you know, as as a sort of as like if people need treatment or they do have issues that they should be able to receive treatment. They debunked these myths that we still live with today and that a lot of these organizations get their power from like the idea of um the gateway drug myth mm-hmm. they were they were debunking that in the 1930s uh, yeah. so even you know before we think of the history of the war on drugs uh, as being sort of like you know ronald reagan steps in in the 80s and really sets up this military strategy the um the basis for ignoring inconvenient information so that certain powerful actors could push uh, these strategies um, has been going on for an extremely long time. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so powerful. And that's one of the reasons why I think debunking these these myths uh, as much as possible is a really powerful tool. Absolutely. I agree. And every time that the government's, you know, they've, they've put funding into research, the research was always pointed. It was saying, we want you to find something negative about cannabis, whatever you can come up with. And most all the research would come back and say, what we found was positive things. And they would immediately get defunded and be like, nope, we'll find somebody else to do this research, mm-hmm. which immediately says the government has no interest in finding the actually solving what they consider a problem. Their problem is how do we control people? How do we get more more money for whatever we're doing? And uh, the private prison system, I mean, that that concept in general is absolutely insane. And, you know, and I'm not anti-capitalist, but this is capitalism gone amok when you have people Mm -hmm. investing in prisons and then needing and lobbying for laws to create that are going to put more people in prison. And how do you get most people in prison? Cannabis was the the Mm -hmm. best answer because people use it and they want to. Exactly. I, I absolutely. And, and just, uh, you know, to your point about the type of research that's been done to bolster these myths about uh, drug use, I um, 
I came across some research that was actually founded, uh, it was actually funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, which did a lot of grants about uh, the adverse effects of cannabis. And one of the things that kind of blew me away is it was a study that was ostensibly about um, how cannabis impacts like motor skills and uh, people's response timing and stuff, basically implying that, you know, it, it is extremely intoxicating and maybe that um, driving while high might be an issue. But what they actually did was they had people consume cannabis in a controlled environment and had them do a flight simulator. And I was like, I'm pretty sure we can all agree that maybe you shouldn't be like smoking a joint before you go like fly an airplane. I don't think that's wild right. to say, but like, you know, pre then presenting it in a way that it says, okay, we've proven that, you know, it has all these adverse effects on hand-eye coordination. It, it, it impacts response time. And therefore it is this debilitating, dangerous substance. You know, yeah, it gets, it gets very distorted. and. Um, even the memory, even even sort of the the barring of of studying uh, hallucinogens, um, I think is is a major issue as well. With that, there are, are so many um, benefits and medicinal applications of these substances that uh, are not allowed to be studied. And and it, when they are, it's in very controlled environments, and a lot of times it's in a way that is meant to uh, give the pharmaceutical industry a lot more control over these uh, substances um, yep. in a way that kind of removes it from the, the cultures that they emerge from. So definitely. yeah, I think there's a lot of connections there. There definitely is. And if you look at like the peyote ceremonies that, and the, and the way that the, the natives use these, uh, you know, the sacramental drugs or sorry, drugs, uh, plant medicines, whatever you want to call them, they don't use them recreationally the way we do. They do them uh, as a rite of passage. They have certain mm -hmm. ceremonies. And I think that, you know, the, our culture, LSD could be, you know, the, the, for, you know, for white culture or whatever you want to call it. I think LSD is, is our sacrament and, and it's not been allowed to use in any of these research. They've pretty much mm -hmm. gotten LSD out of the picture. So that's why psilocybin is the only one becoming legal. And, and I think psilocybin is amazing, but you're right. They're trying to package this whole microdose thing. How can we make money off this? The idea uh -huh. that somebody can, somebody can take psilocybin have an amazing experience and then not need medicine for you know six months maybe never again like but if you you know mm -hmm. every few months to do a to do a ceremony that doesn't make any money for those pharmaceutical companies <laughs> so they have no interest in doing that yeah absolutely i mean there's so much research demonstrating that periodic and sporadic um experiences, nonlinear experiences or experiences that allow people to kind of have those expansive moments are, can be incredibly beneficial for people's uh, perspective, for their sense of self. You know, we also know that there's obviously huge downsides to people doing those things in the wrong setting or with the wrong motivations. You know, there it's an extremely sort of powerful uh, tool, but like, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think when you have that profit motive involved, it really distorts what could otherwise be a very humanitarian good. I think in partial, what we're seeing is this, this reflects a wider dynamic that we see just in, in the medical industry and healthcare in general, where the United States does have a lot of perverse incentives with um, insurance and pharmaceutical companies, uh, hospital management, 
many of the decisions that are, um, you know, on paper about providing health for people or, or helping people get healthy um, really do have this, this motive to monetize it and privatize and profit uh, that I think, you know, when it comes to something like someone's health, the way that I think about it as a sociologist is um, that's, you know, there are certain places where you can have markets because demand is going to ebb and flow. But when it comes to someone's mental or physical health, people will be willing to pay whatever they can in order to uh, feel okay, in order to get to the other side of that. So it's kind of, it puts consumers at an extreme uh power disadvantaged if you say, hey, we're going to raise the price of this drug or, hey, we're going to make it really difficult for you to access this treatment that could be really effective uh, simply because we want to see how much you'll pay for it. We want to know how much we can squeeze out of it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that is like sort of a, a generalizable principle that we can see both in the in the war on drugs and in, in how it mirrors other um, other industries, which are on one hand claiming to be about protecting health and protecting safety, but on the other hand, introduce a lot of power and influence and uh, sort of this this profit motive and how that can really distort things. Yeah. And, and one thing you said actually kind of leads me to this question I have about heroin, it's a, a different subject on drugs, but the idea that people will pay whatever they can to, to make themselves feel better. And this also, you know, so when you have heroin goes to the streets, the price that people pay, it's not even just the, the, the cost of the drugs that are a thousand percent more on the streets, but the chance of the risk of death, the loss mm -hmm. of limbs for injecting different chemicals. I mean, there's the price is so high, but people are still paying it because people are going through trauma or whatever they're trying to escape and heroin mm -hmm. seems to help them. And, and I was curious, your question, or I was going to ask you what your thought is on, heroin because so that's that's a taboo one a lot of people are, are on different sides of the fence but what do you yeah. think about the heroin laws should people have legal access to a drug like heroin i think that is a that is a really interesting question because i think you're right that that is where a lot of people are much more polarized i think we do have sort of a cannabis exceptionalism sort of problem in the drug reform world where i think that feels like the safe topic to um, talk about reform, to talk about, you know, humanizing cannabis users. Um, yeah, I think there are substances like um, heroin or, or anything that almost gets labeled as a hard drug that, yeah, yeah it becomes a third rail. People become afraid to humanize the people that use it. And they also are, are it's also a place where I think even people who are experts and even people who are interested in reforming policies sometimes fall victim to myths. So I think that personally, based on my research into this topic, I think that I am very in favor of a complete across the board harm reduction slash pleasure maximization approach to all drug use. I think that the number one harm proposed by substance use is the fact that people are doing it in, in incredibly dangerous circumstances and that they're doing it under the fear of incarceration. I don't think that there are any uh, forms of, of substance use that that is going to contribute to a healthier environment. 
And I think that if people can get past their sort of the, the dehumanization and the moralization of drug use that that has really been um, basically, you know, we've been socialized into through the media depictions of drug use, through PSAs, through even things like dare programs that aren't effective, through the, the, the narratives that we see in the media where, you know, let's say the New York Times does a story on the opioid epidemic and who they decide to interview is like police officers and, you know, other people who have a vested interest in, in um, criminalization. Um, I think if we can get past that and actually see that these are human beings, um, many people who use heroin actually don't have a substance use disorder, which I think is the first myth and misconception that mm -hmm. most people struggle with. So yeah. most of the research indicates that people who use heroin um, don't do so in a disordered way. It, it doesn't actually disrupt their life. It's uh, fairly sporadic. Um, it's mm -hmm. not uh, what we would consider disordered use. Um, and that there are other predictors for disordered use that um, we could actually control for and try to get at the root cause of if, if we as a society are genuinely concerned with substance use disorder. As you mentioned, it's much more linked to trauma it's linked to people having uh, issues with social disconnection, people self-medicating because they're dealing with extreme financial or psychological strain. And these are all things that neither incarceration nor forcing someone to go through an illicit market is going to ever resolve. No, and so I think, you know, that's my take on it. I think that... Um, you know, I might have a little bit more of a radical perspective uh, than even maybe most people in my field. And I think it's because um, I'm deeply interested in thinking of, of these problems in terms of like, you know, what is the real human experience that's being produced by this? How is it producing suffering? How is it producing joy for real living, breathing people that could very well be me. You know, it's only through happenstance that I didn't go down that path. It's not because I'm like some great moral person. It just uh, didn't happen to me. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's genuinely how I look at it. There's so much evidence that if, if the if the metrics we're using are uh, reducing substance use disorder, reducing harmful uh, substance and dangerous substance use, um, making sure that people aren't using uh, toxic and poison drug supplies out of desperation. Like all of those things have real human costs that are like life and death for our friends and neighbors and family members. Um, so that tends to be how I look at it. I, I think that if there were supervised consumption sites, if there were um, access to a safe and controlled supply, I think that if there was much more access to treatment that wasn't zero tolerance, for instance, I think that if there was a lot more opportunities for housing and employment that didn't weren't precarious based on drug testing, I think all of those things would actually contribute to resolving the opioid crisis or the overdose crisis way more than any of the things we're doing now. hundred percent. And, you know, the, uh, if you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the um, rat studies, the rat palace and, mm -hmm. Yeah. So like they said, we've created the first version of that where we have people 
Like if we wanted, if we wanted to make a society that's that's going to lead people to addiction, we've done exactly that. People that have trauma and that use drugs, then we arrest them. And um, you know, because I I've used I've used heroin. I was I, when I was younger, I recreationally smoked heroin. I never got addicted to it. Um, I and had I been arrested and had I been, um, you know, cause every time I was arrested for like cannabis, which happened twice, it adds stress to my life, financial stress. I fought with my wife and those kind of things, as I was growing spiritually and finding who I was and, you know, you know, I was, uh, you know, trying to overcome some trauma of my past. I it was able to get out of all that. And I, you know, I'm not addicted to any drugs now, but I could have been, it could have been a lot worse. And if I'd been arrested and spent time in prison, it only would have been worse. And that's what we're doing to these people. And it's really, it's really sad. And that's, I think that's what, what your goal is. And my goal is we're trying to make a healthier society and help these people. And, um, and I think another thing is about the, uh, the way people reason heroin is so taboo is that when you look at uh, heroin through the lens of the drug war, which is the only way we've seen it. Nobody alive today ever remembers a time when the, when it was legal. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, all they know is if, they, so in their minds, if you legalize it, the problems we see now will only be worse. They don't, they can't see it going the other way because it, it doesn't really make sense if you don't really think too much about it. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. And I think the question that uh, I think, you know, a lot of people need to consider, especially if they don't have a lot of personal experience with heroin is it's almost like the assumption is that uh, the only reason people, the average person isn't like shooting up heroin right now is because it's illegal. And it's like, I I think that it's people's motivations for using substances. You have to give people a lot more credit than that, that, that um, that's not how it works. Right. Uh, And especially for the average person who is maybe abstinent from drugs or has never used substances. It's like, well, think about it from your perspective. Um, Is that what's preventing you from doing it? Or is it that that just doesn't appeal to you or, you know, you're not interested in altering your consciousness or whatever, because like, you know, that's not what really makes the difference. Uh, Yeah. So even that, even, even sort of the, the idea of like it deterring people by being illegal there's really not a lot to back that up. Um, no, there's not. Yeah, and I think, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I had Dr. Junkie on my podcast and he was, he said that he asked everybody the same thing when he says, if heroin was legal, everybody do it. He's like, would you? And they always say, <laughs> well, I wouldn't. It's like, well, exactly. So like that, that's, you just proved my point, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think that people are very willing to apply one set of reasoning to themselves and their families and their neighbors. But I think that there is sort of this mythical folk demon out there that people have in their minds of the criminal. Uh, I would guess I would call it the drug criminal. I think that it's something that is is pretty deeply racialized in many cases. Mm-hmm. So when yeah. you look at like the 1980s, the way that the quote unquote uh, drug problem or the crack epidemic was depicted, it was depicted as being present in sort of crumbling public housing and like urban decay in predominantly black communities. But at the same time, rates of powder cocaine use among uh, white suburban uh, young adults was skyrocketing and causing just as many, uh, if not different types of problems. And so I think that that one of the issues is this 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 thing that that has been very successful for the drug warriors of our society is that if they can associate drug use 
with an already disadvantaged or stigmatized group, it becomes that much easier to dehumanize um, anyone who is remotely uh, either empathetic towards um, or uh, who uses uh, any kind of, of substance. Um, because I think it, it creates such um, an empathy gap where it becomes very difficult for people who are having these conversations to remember that they're talking about human beings and that they're talking about human beings with, you know, all the same, same rights, responsibilities, joys, privileges, interests as anybody else. Um, so I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm excited uh, about the work that's being done at, at the grassroots level to just try to think of people with substance uh, use disorders and, and people who just use substances recreationally or medically that are banned um, to really think of them as people that have rights and that their rights don't end. Their, their human rights, their civil rights don't end simply because they ingested a certain substance. And also, um, I mean, and people that used heroin before it was outlawed and people that use heroin in places like Switzerland they're very high functioning, regular people, just like someone who mm -hmm. has a, dr a drink of alcohol every night after work. That's the same kind of thing. You don't think of those people as alcoholics just because they have a beer every day or two or three beers every day, but they're, that's, that's, that's what absolutely. They, yeah. So, and the thing is heroin, if you're searching for it on the streets, it's extremely expensive, which leads mm -hmm. to a life of crime. A lot of the drug dealing itself happens because of addicts needing money for their own drugs. So the prohibition has caused what we view as the, the drug problem. And if exactly. you, ever, you, ever watch, you ever watch Intervention, I know it's a horrible show, but do you watch it to, <laughs> to see I what? Have, go ahead. I've never actually watched that show. I think I would. I think you're right that I would probably not like it because of the of the narrative device that they use. But uh, I, you know, I'm curious what your take is on it. Well, so I wanted to watch it to get to, to get a perspective of what the average person views addiction as, and I'd never uh -huh. seen the show, so I've turned it on, and it was. It was so awful. There's this, there was a, the only, I only watched one episode is all I could stomach. And this girl, she was a, a meth addict and she was freaking out and her parent fighting with her mom. And they were dragging her out of the house. The cops came and they put her in handcuffs and they put her in the back of the car. And so you see somebody at their worst on camera in front of their family. And then the, uh, the doctor on the show looks at the camera and says, she's in a really bad place. She is very sick jail is going to be a good thing for her and oh, that just geez. really just pissed me off i was like have you ever heard of a hospital you're a doctor <laughs> like yeah that's that's like hey uh we're gonna send you to jail because you have cancer yeah like that's that's the reasoning i think you know i think this is what what you know when you see uh where there are these industries that are deeply invested in this approach um Certainly the media is plays a big part of it. And that's why in, in my book, I, I, you know, I wanted to build on the work of previous people who've analyzed the, the history of the drug war and analyzed, you know, the legal ramifications and analyzed, you know, the, the inequalities. But like one thing I thought was missing was we know that the media is also perpetuating a lot of the worst myths and stereotypes and, uh, about drug use and about who uses drugs, why they use drugs, what the solution is. And so I think that's why, you know, uh, the media has become, at least in my perspective, I think the media is an important battleground for 
more people who are, you know, more empathetic to uh, humanizing drug users and people who uh, are caught up in, in the system, and also people who are coming from a place of having actually done the real uh, empirical research on these topics, like more of those people need to be part of the conversation that appears in media. You know, I, I really have been pushing when I meet with policy organizations or activists, like write that op-ed, uh, you know, make your make a documentary, make some make a piece of media that that presents your side, you know, try to try to uh, connect with journalists, try, try to connect with people and try to be, you know, a voice that's in the conversation because public opinion is really being shaped by mass media as much as anything else. Um, and I think that's such a powerful force where you can see change happening because this is something that I know just at, like as a sociologist who studies media, when people don't have direct experience with something, like let's say someone has never been involved in the legal system, someone has never used substances, all they've ever done is kind of just heard about all this stuff secondhand. The media is actually going to be their primary source of information on these topics. People like yourself or, or me who have either direct experiences or, you know, we've, we've done research. Obviously, you've had so many conversations, I'm sure, with this podcast that has opened your eyes mm -hmm. that you don't need to rely on media depictions in the same way that someone else might. But I think that really points to the fact that media is such an important institution for changing the tide on, on these policies and, and for uh, changing people's perspectives on it. Um, I would, yeah, say the, so I'd I, say it's the number one thing that people are get their they get their ideas from. Their opinions are mainly formed through the television they watch, and. Um, mm -hmm. And it even happens in shows like, like, you know, growing up watching like Saved by the Bell or Family Matters, there's going to be a, a, they're going to have the episode where some one of their friends gets goes down the wrong path and ends up on drugs and they and the hero comes and gets them out of that situation. And, mm -hmm. and, you, and then you learn as a child, you're like, oh, drugs are bad. The good person doesn't do them. And, and, she, and also the person that slipped up and did drugs, usually there was some villainous person that that seduced them into doing the drugs. It was just some exactly. crazy thing. So, and I, I remember watching this one show. It was, uh, it's, I want to say it was from the seventies. I don't remember it, but a detective comes in and they base they base the character on Timothy Leary. So he's in there, he's all trippy, you know, it's all the psychedelic stuff all around him. And the cops are like there to arrest him. He's like, I don't have anything on me. You can't arrest me. And he's like, you know, we, we had a kid pull out his own eyes so we could stare at his, uh, stare at himself. You know, what would you say to that? And then, but the, the way they presented it was the Timothy Leary character had a really good argument for everything they were saying, but ultimately the cops won. And this made it look like they were giving a fair thing, but uh -huh. what they didn't say was the, what he should have said is nobody's ever pulled their own eyes out to look at themselves. Yeah. But, but what his actual response was, well, what he saw on that, on LSD was bet was more real than anything he'll ever see in life. And it's like, no, that's not. That's not a good argument. No. And it's not, nobody's ever done that, but that's the kind of things that people heard and they've exactly. heard the stories. Someone st stared at the sun until they went blind. People thought they could fly and jumped off buildings. And while there are stories, there's, you know, there'll be one in a million of something like that that does happen. Tragedies happen, alcohol every day, but mm -hmm. we, we, you know, we perpetuate it by making it sound like that story is what's going to happen to anybody who touches it. And like you said, people who, don't have any direct experience with it. That's all they know are these stories. So they're terrified of these drugs. 
Absolutely. Yeah, the stories we tell and who gets to be the protagonist and who we empathize with plays a huge role. So if we're encouraged to empathize with the good guys, you know, and I think of the one that you pointed out with like Saved by the Bell or like these media tropes, like they really do have a profound impact. So I think there is definitely a sense that, you know, I got this even in my research, but in my research, I, I looked at basically how people respond to different arguments about drug policy, not only in, in media, like newspapers and op-eds and uh, journalism, but also in like the comment sections of articles. Like, you know, if, let's say I, I look at an article where they're presenting a certain argument. I wanted to go to the comment section and analyze, you know, what are the the things that, what are the, the, uh, the frames, what are the big ideas they're relying on to make sense of these arguments? And definitely people draw a distinction between the drug user who is basically like a dupe, they're like uh, manipulated or, or tricked, the drug pusher or the drug uh, dealer who is like a a very malicious, evil person who um, oftentimes it's almost just depicted as like a straight up monster who just needs to like go to jail and they're evil. Um, but you also have to think about like the way that these problems are depicted in terms of different social groups. So usually what you see in the media is that drug dealers tend to be depicted as people of color. They tend to be mm -hmm. depicted as black or Latinx people. When the research just doesn't bear that out at all. The, most of the research demonstrates that white people are actually more likely to uh, sell drugs, not only just because the, of the demographics, but because the only information that we really usually go off of for this stuff is arrest data. And the arrest data is based on what communities are being targeted for drug use or mm -hmm. what for, for uh, you know, enforcement of these laws. When research actually tries to demonstrate um, actual rates of drug dealing, um, which is difficult to do, but the research that has taken place on that has demonstrated that there's not actually um, this overwhelming disparity where people of color are drug dealers. Um, we also see that, you know, the so-called victims of the war on drugs tend to be depicted as or, or the victims of the drug problem tend to be depicted as young uh, white people who have a lot of promise, potentially, you know, plans of a career going to college. Um, maybe they come from a middle class background and they just made a mistake and they slipped up and, you know, they were they deserve redemption. And. This is actually a narrative that was uh, unfortunately pushed by a lot of drug reform organizations in the 80s and 90s of depicting people who use cannabis or other drugs as sort of these, uh, you know, hey, these are veterans, these are uh, young white college students, these are good upstanding middle class kids who just, you know, they either went down the wrong path or they're having a hard time, but it's still left open this whole frame of there being this sort of um, evil drug dealer character that is still deserving of, in this narrative, uh, of violence, of control, of, um, you know, extreme levels of surveillance, uh, of not having any human rights. 
And so it still left open the possibility that there could still be these two different classes of treatment. And it still perpetuated the narrative that if we associate certain drug use with whiteness and, and middle-class lifestyles, that will at least destigmatize it for the people in those communities. And at a certain point, I, I do worry about, you know, I think that there has been a real tone shift at, of, over the past couple of years, which I've been really excited to see, especially places like here in New York, where mm -hmm. organizations, grassroots organizations are really taking these inequalities seriously. But I do think that there has been a little bit of a legacy of, of policy reform organizations that were mostly concerned with uh, making sure that people who already had access to privilege and privacy could uh, use cannabis without being inconvenienced rather than looking at the big picture of, of resolving mass incarceration or police brutality or the targeting of certain communities. Um, so, yeah, we can see that in the media as well, though, that, that you know, carving out these very specific like it's it's like the stories we tell and who the characters are has such a huge impact on how people interpret reality so i think i think you're spot on with that yeah and i was going to ask you if, what the uh the general consensus is in the universities because you're an associate pro a professor so you're in that mm -hmm. world of the universities and i remember reading my buddy that was in uh, unc Asheville sent me the book going up the river uh it's about the um the prison it says uh travels in a prison nation so mm -hmm. I, I feel like the universities have always been a little bit ahead on the curve of they've because they're studying this stuff so they're seeing the problems of mass incarceration but with drug legalization in the universities what is their general opinion with around professors in, in, the, in that place you know it's interesting because i think that there are people who are strongly dependent on the grant system so they their research could be very easily framed by the type of funding that they're receiving from the National Institute uh, for Drug Addiction or the National Institute on Drug Addiction, mm. uh, which is going to frame things in terms of, hey, let's uh, make sure we're focusing on, uh, we want you to do a study where you're demonstrating the potential, you know, um, the potential risks of a certain policy reform. Um, so I think that does create a little bit of, of a difficult situation, but I think what, what I'm seeing in terms of people who study, uh, drug use, drug addiction, and drug policy, um, that aren't so closely aligned with those sort of traditional institutions and power structures is that they, uh, are taking a, you know, there is much more interest in a few different areas. One is harm reduction. So there has been a huge growth in empirical research and study on harm reduction. It's being taken up in a lot of different fields from public health to sociology to uh, other areas. I also think that there are a lot of legal scholars that have been doing a lot of really good work on just fighting the legal arguments around these cases. So like Michelle Alexander is such a great example of that, but I almost think of her as sort of like the, the tip of the iceberg. She's kind of the public face mm -hmm. of that work that's been going on for, for years from legal scholars and activists who have just been compiling the evidence and compiling 
the arguments to really make the case for these more crucial structural reforms for things like, um, you know, um, reparations for victims of the drug war, for mm -hmm. having an equity strategy when we do finally uh, pass um, some drug uh, reforms. So, so like, for instance, here in New York, when they legalize cannabis, um, and, and, you know, by the way, happy holidays. Yeah, that's right. We're recording this. 420. Uh, cheers for that. But uh, <laughs> but when they uh, when they legalized cannabis, um, it was majorly pushed by uh, researchers and people who were very active uh, in public health, people that were very active in in activism and, and ground um, in a really big collaboration between um, academics and grassroots activists and people who were interested in policymaking. And because of that, um, they were actually able to pass some of, at least in my opinion, some of the best and most uh, expansive and liberating drug policies in the country. So, you know, one major thing that they, that they did that I think is so impressive and that is based on a lot of the research that's been done on the war on drugs is they actually set it up so that, all, you know, all of the money that, that is going to come in through the cannabis industry, we're talking probably billions of dollars in tax revenue for, you know, all of those cannabis transactions. They set it up so that it would actually be um, invested in the communities who were most harmed by the war on drugs. So like a mechanism like that can make a huge difference. And so it's been excellent for me, you know, I don't know what the mainstream consensus is among academics, but at least in, in the, the corner of the, of the academic world that I'm most active in and the people that I most frequently talk to and collaborate with, um, there is a huge push right now for, for recognizing that um, reforms are really not gonna be meaningful or possible unless they address these underlying structural issues, inequalities. Um, and so I think more and more people are taking that seriously. More and more people are taking seriously the idea of harm reduction, uh, abolition, liberation, and uh, human rights as kind of being the, the forward thinking principles for our, our policies. Um, I think it's taking it's taking up traction in certain places. I think uh, one thing that's been disheartening, and I'm sure you know a lot of people feel this way, is just the the federal uh, space is very in unresponsive to the public consensus. So even outside of of experts, the average person you know thinks cannabis should be legalized. Yeah, right. so, so two thirds of Americans want it legal. So if our representatives really, you know, were working for us, they would have decriminalized it, you know, a while ago. Well, that's what that's what the Biden Harris administration has even promised to do uh, in order to secure the Democratic nomination. Is is that they put that on their agenda? Mm -hmm. um, I'm I tend to be pretty pretty cynical when it comes to powerful people because I study politics and I study uh, power. So I guess I, I'm not I'm less interested in like sussing out, um, you know, if someone's a good person or not or whatever, but I'm more interested in what, what I think they're likely to do. And I think that a lot of people forget how deeply entwined 
this current federal administration is with the war on drugs, that Mm -hmm. Joe Biden is the architect of the uh, crime bill. You know, he's Mm -hmm. responsible for creating mass incarceration. Uh, Kamala Harris, as the D, as the district attorney of California, um, was a pretty harsh enforcer of drug laws, even in a time when drug laws were liberalizing in California. She kind of pushed back against that. So, yeah, I think one of the things that I really try to think about is like. There's so much action taking place at the state level that's really exciting and really great to focus on. And that's really, I think, where I see the most cool stuff happening, especially with activists and, and, and researchers being able to actually speak to policymakers. But I think what it's going to take is um, I think what it's going to take is figuring out how to hold elected leaders at the federal level accountable, because as it stands, a lot of people feel like um, holding, you know, holding the Democrats accountable. The only thing they can come up with is voting for Republicans who are probably going to just have more regressive drug laws. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that that I think puts a lot of people in a double bind in terms of the, the federal level. Um, and it I think does. that's one of the limitations that we're facing right now. Yeah, it's it's really it's really messed up. And I, I you know, I did on the uh, vice presidential debates, Kamala Harris said that they were going to decriminalize cannabis and expunge records. And that's the last you heard about it. And, Mm -hmm. and it really is bothersome. And, you know, I, I, I'm curious to see what, what happens with this more act thing, but you know, it's, it's just surprising. You see the Republicans, only three Republicans voted for the more act. It's like, what do they have against this? If their constituents, their constituents want it, it's, the, the numbers are in that we yeah. want cannabis legal. So why are the Republicans so against it? And the, and then, like you said, the Democrats might talk about doing it, but when they get in power, they're not doing it. And there was mm-hmm. what, 20 candidates on that stage for the democratic primary. And the only one that was, that stri- never said anything about legalization. He's the one that got the nomination. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's difficult. And I think, you know, when you ask, I think you raised a really interesting point because I'm, I'm so deeply interested in, in the, the actual, you know, and that's why in my book, I, I really center on what I call like the racial politics of this. But I think just in a general sense, the politics of it, because one question that I think is is um, very illuminating to why this is such a struggle and such an uphill battle, despite there being a, a public consensus on this issue, is I think that many politicians uh, of both parties have a much different sense of who their constituents are than what you and I, as the average person, think it should be. I'm not sure that they regard the average person who lives in their state or their district as the constituents. I think their constituents in their minds are, who are the people that are going to help me raise funds for my reelection campaign? Mm-hmm. Who are the consistent lobbies that I need to appease? Um, who are the policymaking organizations that are going to put legislation in front of me that I can sign? And when you think about it through that lens, the constituents are much more likely to be police departments, uh, different industries that make a lot of money off of uh off of substances being criminalized, um, 
you know, organizations that have taken a really strong moral stance on these issues. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, we're getting at, I think, maybe a, a larger issue of like, you know, this is just one further symptom that the disconnect between public opinion and policy on, on drug policy, it represents a larger symptom, or it's one symptom of a larger problem of just the lack of, of democracy. Uh, that I think, you know, it is it is bigger, but I, I you know, I, I, I hope that more people that are concerned with with the drug policy side of it um, take seriously that, you know, one of the things that's going to really hinder the success of the drug reform movement is the lack of political equality and political rights, because you could get everyone on board who's just a regular person. You could win. You could win the, uh, you know, the marketplace of ideas, as they say. And uh, unfortunately, that might not be enough until there's also sort of more uh, power in the hands of people and more accountability. So I think that's like kind of the next thing to try to think about is how to hold elected officials accountable in a real way uh, to what they say they're going to do, or at least what what most people want. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of the bigger question. I don't I don't have the answer, obviously, but yeah, get, getting money, issue. getting money out of our po- politics is going to be it's not possible, unfortunately, but that that would be that's what we need to happen. They shouldn't mm-hmm. be able to just blindly give. And also these pharmaceutical companies, they don't just put money in one candidate's pocket. They, they put them in both pockets. Like so whoever mm-hmm. wins, they're in our pocket. It doesn't matter which one wins. And so th- that's why you see a lot of the Democratic, the bills that pass are very similar to the Republicans that they differ. The, the things they differ on are things like, uh, you know, more social issues like um, we got uh, Democrats got gay marriage legal. Um, the Republicans are fighting abortion issues right now. But the, the issues, the you know economic issues and stuff like that and crime issues, they tend to be the same. Like you see the mm-hmm. Clinton was was worse for was worse than his pre- uh, predecessor with what he did for crime and he, um, you know, reducing housing costs and mm-hmm. upping the prison budget and that, and you wouldn't think a Democrat should do that, that we should be going the other way, but that's not how it's been working. They just are all moving in the same direction. Yeah. It's something that I talk to students about because I think that, that when I'm talking to my students about politics, they're very concerned about polarization. And I think, you know, that's something that they really see that maybe makes them, um, stressed out or like, you know, they, that's where they see politics as a space that's a very contentious and scary, you know, they see the fact that people in their families with different political identities can't get along or people are yelling at each other. And so they're very worried about polarization. And I think rightfully so. But one of the things that I've encouraged them to kind of also think about is one of the problems is also that if we have these two giant parties, there are going to be things that they agree on that the average person might not agree on that could be just as damaging in the fact that we don't have any opportunities to um, to influence that then. You know, if, if there are areas where both parties agree, then maybe we're all, you know, we're only then uh, our only options are basically like, I don't know, whichever one seems like the lesser of two evils, whichever one is going to be maybe not be so bad on it. And it's like, you know, it, it does make sense. I think sometimes when people start to go a little nihilistic, especially about electoral presidential politics when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. It just gets to a point where you just, 
question whether even going to vote. I mean, I, I voted third party for most of my elections. There's been a few um, few that I decided to go with the major party because I thought it was important. But um, like la- last year, I actually changed my um, I registered from independent to Democrat so that I could vote in the primary because it was very important to me. But by the time the primary got to my state, Biden had already it was already him. So it didn't make any difference. I didn't get a vote or a say in the primary. And, you know, you have somebody like Bernie Sanders who comes in and I don't agree with everything he stood for, but I thought he's a, a, a really um, honest person and believed in what he was doing. And and you look at the DNC every time they have a candidate like him come in, he doesn't stand with, for everything that they stand for. So they would push him out. They would do everything they could to make him not the candidate. And that's, that's I think we're going to keep having that problem. No matter how much I love somebody and, and if they join a major party, if they're not for that, everything that party stands for, that party is going to ch- kick him out. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is where for me, I always want to encourage people to channel their nihilism into or not yeah, channel their nihilism, but that frustration is to channel it into the spaces where they might actually be able to have a little more influence. So I think that, you know, I think that focusing more on movement based politics, focusing more on grassroots politics, focusing more on like, you know, who in your immediate community is doing work to change things that you really support. It would probably be better to align yourself with that person and to try to help them and collaborate with them. And you might actually have an impact in your own community or in your own state than it is to think that you're going to somehow, um, you know, that you advocating for or supporting some political elite that is completely out of reach and completely lives in a different uh, context than than you and I um, is going to be open to these things. So, like, I think, you know, I, I, I become, uh, you know, the more that I've studied these things and I've also I think part of this is also, you know, I'm, all, I'm currently doing some, my next uh, project, which is focusing on grassroots democracy in the United States. And, you know, there's obviously kind of a big link there with, with drug policy reform and grassroots mm-hmm. democracy. Um, and in, I think increasingly I, I see that as like, let's, you know, because, you know, I think it's important for people to have hope. And I think it's important for people to have avenues for change. And I think, uh, Unfortunately, I think that presidential and electoral politics, it's important to not completely disengage. It's good to know what's going on. It's good to vote. I mean, you know, I'm not one of those like don't vote people. But I also think that it's just not the the space where change happens. I think change happens from below. And I think change happens in communities before it happens, uh, you know, Basically, you have to you have to create an environment where so much change has taken place in communities that it almost seems politically advantageous at that point for a major politician to take that stance and claim it as their own. Like by the time that a local grassroots initiative has been co-opted by a political elite, that's not ideal but it is actually a real marker of success. And that's actually what I think um, does create some type of accountability, even if it's not, you know, immediate, 
But um, I think that's actually how change how change takes place is like growing movement uh, capacity and growing the democratic capacity and growing the awareness of people on the ground in a community. So, you know, when you're having conversations with people who are involved in the drug culture or people who are drug users themselves, like, you know, raising their consciousness and their awareness about um, what's going on in their community, what what organizations are, are doing to support them, what opportunities there are to get involved in activism um, locally, like all of those things can be incredibly empowering. And, um, you know, I think I think that's kind of like the real space where I'm sensing, at least in, in the work that I'm doing, where I'm sensing like a little bit of a sea change and where I'm sensing that um, people are actually like doing the work and like doing really cool stuff and having victories. And, um, you know, I think it's that's a good those are good spaces to pay attention to is what's happening at that level. It might not rise to the level of like major political discourse or like, you know, what, what, uh, gets like the headlines, but it really does make a huge impact. And it is a space where people can really, uh, you know, start to try to change things. So I, I definitely agree with you that it's like, you know, I think there's such a huge emphasis on, on the federal level and, and voting and all that kind of stuff. But I think we're, we're learning through a really tragic experience right now that um politicians need to be under a lot more pressure to do the thing that's maybe morally or ethically correct or correct from a human rights standpoint if it's not considered ages for them and their uh their donors or them and the people that they uh represent you know you really have to make it so that uh they're doing something not only unpopular, but something that seems immoral. And I think that that's really, I think, I think how, how a lot of these changes happen. Um, I love that. And I, and yeah. I, haven't, I haven't actually thought about, I don't know why I've never thought about, um, uh, you know, trying to get into local politics or you know, talking or helping with them. I, I'm in Lee County, Florida. So it's extremely, uh, you know, it's Trump flags everywhere. Let's uh-huh. go Brandon chance at the bar. Like it's, so I just kind of feel like I'm, I'm not going to have anything in common with any of the, the local pol- you know, political parties or anything, but that's not true. There's people that think like me here. I just got to find them and then, you know, start there. I think, yeah. And I think, you know, that's something that I think that's a big thing that I've really come to try to understand is like, kind of like what you said, I think, you know, this is something that I think about a lot as a sociologist, someone who it's kind of my job for better or worse, sometimes for worse, sometimes for better to think about big social problems like the war on drugs is like, it can be so overwhelming and so depressing when you think about these big systems and you think about, it's almost like these big machines that are kind of like chewing people up and spitting people out. And it's Mm -hmm. so tragic. And it's like, I've been just kind of in this place of trying to figure out where can we carve out a a sense of empowerment and agency, because I talked to so many people since I put my book out, just conversations I've had with colleagues, friends, family members, uh, doing podcasts, meeting with like policy people is like, there's way more people 
that uh, are open and, and, and want to like really take this stuff seriously than you might think. They might not even be, they might not be like, I think what's unfortunate maybe for where you're coming from is they might not be the loudest, <laughs> maybe most visible people. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I'm probably in a lot more of a, of a, uh, of a progressive bubble, I guess I would say where I live, even though we definitely have our own issues with police repression, war on, drugs uh the criminalization of homelessness there is still some really really horrible human rights violations taking place but at least i know when i talk to an average person on the street um they're going to be a lot more common ground than not but i think you know this is something that i i want to um encourage listeners to try out and it's something that's been helpful for me is this thing called asset mapping which i think sounds like a fancy term that's used maybe in like finance or you know i don't know real estate or something but actually all it really means is like just go on google look up what the organizations are in your area that already exist that are already doing the things that you support and you don't have to start from scratch you don't have to do it on your own you don't have to feel like you're solely responsible all you have to do is figure out who's already doing the stuff that you want to do and how you can support them and how you can be a part of it. And it might not even be necessarily a perfect fit off the bat. Not every organization is going to be right for you. But finding basically like um, finding people that you can collaborate with in these kind of spaces, creating uh, numbers and creating organizations and feeling like you can have more and more conversations with like-minded people. Um, it really brings the humanity and the agency back into it to where people don't feel like they're just being like crushed under the thumb. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think that's like such an important space uh, to pay attention to. Um, and it's something that I'll be honest, it didn't occur to me for a long time either to do, to be honest, you know, I've, I've lived in a lot of different places with a lot of different political cultures. Um, well, one thing I have learned though, talking to like, I have you know, my neighbors, they have the Trump flags flying up, but we're still friendly and everything. And I, and, but I'll talk to them about like, when I talk about drug policy, that's not an issue that, that real, real life Republicans like him, like Republicans in the Congress might only vote three of them might vote for the more act, but your everyday working class Republican, they don't care about weed being legal. They don't care if I'm mm -hmm. getting high. And, and I think that if you said well, we should end the drug war because it's costing billions of dollars yep. and because it's making addiction and overdose problems worse, if they actually saw the things they would all be on, on my side on this. We don't, I'm not mm -hmm. looking for more people on drugs and more people to be addicted to drugs that's not what we want we want the same things yeah absolutely i think that's one of the, that's one of the major issues and i think um you know it's unfortunate because uh on one side i think that this is another space where the media does play a really big role um in shaping people's political identities you know i think that there is a certain extent to which on on for both liberals and conservatives, that they're watching a lot of uh, mainstream news outlets that are really giving them a certain sense of who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, who they should support, who they mm -hmm. should be against. But what there isn't a lot of conversation about, and this is where these kind of conversations can really break down barriers, is 
when was the last time you saw a conversation on on TV where people were literally just talking about a specific public policy and looking at the evidence and research for how that policy is going to impact people? Not is this going to be advantageous for the Democrats or the Republicans in the upcoming election or, you know, what did this uh, politician say that was inflammatory? But just literally like, okay, how is this policy impacting a community and how should it be? And based off that, what should we do? Like that part has been completely removed. And so people do politics in a way that's extremely based in good guys, bad guys. Uh, you know, they're, they're, I, I, their identities are invested in catchphrases and slogans and um, their personalities are shaped by their political uh, identities. And I think in some, some sense that can be a real big, uh, you know, it can help people stay invested and stay involved with the things that they care about. It's not necessarily an all bad thing. But it does make it so that when we try to have these conversations about policy issues, uh, it really does muddy the waters because a lot of times these are in investments that people have made about their fundamental worldview and their beliefs and what the world looks like and who, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, what's the moral code of, of the world. And, and like, that's not always open to uh, evidence. That's not always open to right moving beyond it. But um, no, I think, I think that's important. I think, I think, you know, what you, you've just identified is really important is, is being willing to have those conversations with anyone who will have them. Um, mm-hmm. As long as it's, it's not destructive, you know, you might have conflict that's productive or you might have conflict that's destructive and knowing the difference, but also finding out who your actual true uh, allies are that are just maybe in your community that you've never met. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are two really great strategies. Yeah, I'm definitely going to look into that. And I really, I love that advice. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I was thinking that one of the problems we have in this country, though, with in the political world is if you have one candidate who's running and, and presents data, let's say somebody presents the data on drugs and says, we need to decriminalize drugs. That's what the data says. Science shows it. Portugal did it. Their crimes went down. And then, and they present it like that. Then the other candidate, all they have to do is run ads saying this candidate supports drugs and wants everybody to be on drugs. And then the people are, their attention span is so short that they see mm-hmm. that ad and they immediately think that this candidate wants my kids on drugs. So I'm not voting for him. And it reminds me, Bernie Sanders was asked on a podcast if he supported cannabis legalization, he said he did. And then he was asked, what about decriminalization of all drugs? And he immediately was like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not ready for that. And I just think, I think he would be for it, but he knew if he would have said that his, his political career would have been over. You can't say that in this country. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a problem. We can't have a lot of politicians at least can't have these honest discussions because they're worried what the other sides, what, what ads are going to play with what they said and, and little, you know, little clips that ruin their chances of, of, being elected. Yeah, no, that's really difficult. That's very difficult. And that's why I think the grassroots efforts and grassroots organizations matter. And that's why having grassroots activism that uh, is getting represented in media really matters to present like a counter narrative to that. Because I think you're right. I think that is all it takes sometimes is uh, advertisements or creating a narrative about someone, or you can kind of scare people. And yeah, that's that's one of the things that's very dangerous 
uh, about about sort of our current political system is people are are very much interested and in, in very constrained by the need to be reelected and the need to be in power. And so from my perspective, you know, I think that's where this all connects is like, you know, the more that there are ground up grassroots efforts to pass local laws, to put pressure on local representatives to sort of turn the tide that way, the more that um, politicians can take a stance that was once considered fringe and take it confidently and not worry about losing support. I mean, it does say something that the Biden campaign uh, and, and the Harris campaign and all of these campaigns, they knew that it was an overwhelmingly popular sentiment and that it would help them get elected to say that they wanted to decriminalize cannabis. I mean, that does mm -hmm. speak to a pretty radical sea change that I think at a big part is because of the efforts of, of activists. So like this thing, these things happen like probably slower than what we would be cool with. It's much slower than what would be ideal. But, um, you know, in the long scale of things, like we can actually see uh, things changing and we can see progress and we can see the, uh, you know, the, the actual conversations, the debate changing. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I think I think that change kind of trickles up from the bottom uh, more so than from the top. And so, yeah, I think I think that's kind of, um, you know, that does speak to something, at least. It does. I mean, the harm reduction movement started as a grassroots movement and mm -hmm. it's been taboo. A lot of places like uh, I've talked to people that said they were when they're given speeches, were told not to use the word harm reduction. And but now mm -hmm. we have, a you know, Biden used the word harm reduction in his State of the Union address. So that's a step forward. And then he, he also passed a bill uh, um, supporting harm reduction. But then you saw what happened with the media. They immediately made it sound like he was supporting people smoking crack or something like that. It was all yeah. over Twitter. But but either way, yeah, we're, I think so, that is the issue. I oh sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just agreeing with you. I yeah, think yeah. this is this is ex exactly the problem with um, and this is something that that I talk about in the book actually. Um, so I'm glad we're kind of going in that direction. And this is what I call kind of common sense myths. Like there can be a media campaign that is literally based off of promoting a myth about drug use and it can be at more impactful if it resonates with people's already existing fears than the actual evidence and truth. And um, yeah, that's really concerning. I, I saw the exact same things that you did. And this is, you know, this is what we call a moral panic is that when you take uh, a policy or a practice or a trend or an activity and basically overestimate it and depict it as a threat to the safety and security of people in society, basically it creates a fear and panic about it that's not warranted. But then that fear and panic is very useful for maintaining power, for keeping certain policies in place. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the major issues also with with politicians at that level is they become so concerned with optics and rhetoric and, you know, things like that. Like one thing that I see um, all the time is people basically saying, you know, self-censoring, basically saying, well, we can't advocate for that 
because that's like giving a point to our uh, adversaries that, you know, they'll, they'll spin it in this direction. So we can't mm. even advocate for this thing. And it's like, I think that's a really bad tendency. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. It's a shame that sometimes you, you almost don't disagree. Like for instance, Bernie Sanders, if he came out and said, he said, no, I think we should legalize all drugs. I, if I were him, I wouldn't have said that either. Even though if, <laughs> I, I definitely think it's just like, if you're running for that big of an off, you know, an office like that, you can't just there's things you just can't say. And like, it's like you said, it's moving in the right direction and it's slow. And I think that's, that's, it's okay. Like you said, I'd much rather just say let's tomorrow, just legalize everything, <laughs> get everybody nonviolent offenders out of prisons immediately. All that I would do immediately, but it's not going to happen that way. So we, we, one step at a time, cannabis legalization is the first step. That's what we're seeing. And I think that in itself is changing people's minds because they've realized they've been lied to a lot mm-hmm. of elderly people down here now have cannabis cards and are using it as medicine and they realize Mm -hmm. this is not the stuff that they thought it was that they were told it was by media and by their government so i think they're going to start questioning the drug the whole drug world all you know all together yeah absolutely i think you know as as the as the myths sort of have less influence on the public you know one thing i think is just being vigilant about new myths and new moral panic so the one that you brought up about fentanyl I think is a huge uh, area where they're going to try to um, they're going to try to drum up a lot of fear and panic about that. I mean, you see these news stories about how you know police officers have an act are worried about accidentally overdosing off of fentanyl because they like touched it, which is mm-hmm. not an actual uh, thing that can happen. It's been debunked. So, like, or even in the UK recently there was a synthetic cannabinoid gummy, uh, like edible product. I think it was maybe something in the THC Delta nine category where it wasn't just like straightforward cannabis. Um, and it might've even been like a synthetic cannabinoid, like one of the, those like K2s or like mm-hmm. the ones that they, that they used to have back in the day as a way of sort of getting around the legal loopholes. Someone had a severe health reaction to that And all of the headlines in the UK presented it as this person uh, overdosed because they took a a marijuana edible. That's how they presented it. So I think that it's something like that is the other battleground is definitely over uh, the information and and whether or not it's presented accurately. And like, I think. The, one of the biggest examples of that was, do you remember the guy that ate the guy? It's, it's, it's a horrible thing that happened in Miami. The guy ate that was eating the guy's face and the cops shot him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the headlines immediately blamed it on bath salts and yeah. bath, and bath salts at the time were legal. And it was like a month later, they passed the bill outlawing bath salts. I don't know much about bath salts and never did them. But, um, but the thing is, is that it was, it was determined that there was no bath salts. There was actually no drugs at all in the system other than THC, but not enough yep. to, to assume that he even did it that day. He was sober. Mm-hmm. But the, does anybody remember that? Every time I've talked about that story to somebody, they're like, oh yeah, bath salts. It's like, see, that's all yep. they remember. Bath salts and you take bath salts and it makes you uh cannibal, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, that is the heart of, of moral panics. Like, I'll be honest, like, like that's, that is the one historical constant in the war on drugs. There mm-hmm. are always going to be people who are moral entrepreneurs. And what I mean by that is they're going to be interested in attaining power and influence. Um, 
and, you know, attaining attention, whatever it is they're trying to get out of it. Maybe they even truly believe in what they're doing, but they are people who, there are always going to be people who are going to be interested in creating a fear narrative around substances Mm -hmm. um, in a way that ends up very much distorting things. And that's where I think that the, um, not even just the information, but if people have access, if people have understanding of some of these basic concepts and frames, you know, the idea that most drug use is not dysfunctional or disordered or driven by addiction, I think is surprising to people. It's a a fact that I present to people and I can tell that they kind of have to process it because, you know, debunking these basic myths makes it so that these propaganda campaigns are less effective too. so, yeah, I think the public education part of it is so big. And, that, and, you know, that's why I appreciate the work that people like yourself are doing just to kind of get more uh, information out there to people who are involved in this kind of space at whatever capacity. Like, I think that's really great. Yeah, I remember I was at one of my gigs. I play music around town and um, and I was reading on my break. I was reading Dr. Carl Hart's book, Drug Use for mm-hmm. Grownups. And this, this drunk girl came over to request a song and she's like, uh, oh, what are you reading? And I showed her the title. She's like, what else? She's like, what, what kind of drugs? I was like, oh, it's about legalizing heroin. I just, just to see what reaction I would get. And she like freaked out about it and was like, oh, what? Like, that's crazy. And she went and I heard her telling her friends, like, this guy's talking about legalizing heroin. She's like, and it was just crazy. It's like, you're, you're, she was really like drunk. And it's just like, people don't understand that that you're on a very, very powerful, hard drug right now, just because yeah. it's legal doesn't mean it's not just as dangerous and actually more dangerous, more dangerous. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we talk about cannabis exceptionalism in the drug reform community, but yeah, the, the way that people carve out a completely separate category for alcohol is a little wild as well. Like, I think that's one of the things that the it is the the ultimate irony is someone being completely uh, blackout drunk and uh, pretending to have an anti-drug stance <laughs> is a little bit it's a little bit ironic. I, know. I went to but, a bar. Uh, I went into a bar the, uh, the other day, and there was a this is a this is a no drug zone. Um, anybody caught doing drugs here will will be prosecuted. And I just want to be like, you're, you're a bar. You make all your money selling drugs. <laughs> I mean, they sell drugs at a coffee shop. If we really want to be <laughs> yeah. technical about it, they sell drugs at, at, at your local coffee shop. Exactly. And, uh, just because those are the drugs that are approved, you know, those are the drugs that uh, don't really alter your consciousness in a way that's going to make you more introspective. If anything, they'll make you make it so you can blow off some steam or in the case of, of caffeine, you know, it'll make it so you're a more productive worker. Mm-hmm. So those ones get the thumbs up. Um, And I think that's the thing that's so fascinating about it is like, you know, there is definitely these, these double standards that are Mm -hmm. so glaring. I mean, and the double standard that you pointed out between alcohol and cannabis or, or alcohol and other substances that I think is, is, is such an eye opening moment for a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. Once you put that together, it's kind of like you can't really put the you can't put the cat back in the bag. Once you realize how fundamentally uh, dysfunctional that is, not only just in terms of like how much rampant alcohol-related violence, car accidents, all kinds of stuff is is like kind of actively encouraged and celebrated in America, 
-hmm. but um, how much alternative ways of altering your consciousness are demonized as only being addictive and harmful and dangerous. Like it, it, it is kind of the, the crux of it, I think. For sure. Yeah, it is. And it is crazy. I, I work on the beach and playing music for the drunkest people, tourists down here. And, you know, I, I remember when can cannabis was up for the vote, I said something about voting for it. And like people, some people got mad. And one person's like, oh, he's talking about marijuana. It's like, like you guys are all getting to enjoy what you like to do, get drunk. <laughs> and and you see that, the, I mean, I've seen so many violent, the violent things happen on alcohol. And again, we've all agreed at society that we don't want alcohol to not be allowed. But mm -hmm. You know, we want it to be done responsibly, but I just, it's such a um, hypocritical point to think that you, your alcohol consumption is somehow better than somebody else who chooses to do a different drug. And cannabis is the easy one because it's the most harmless of the other substances, you know, heroin. I'm for legal heroin for addicts, but I have quite a lot of questions about it myself because I don't think it's, sure. it's something everybody should do. And it definitely is addictive. I've had, I've had addiction to Vicodin. So I've went through the withdrawals and I know what that feels like. It, it wasn't easy getting off of it, but, um, but again, these are people's choices. Anyway, anyway I think we did, yeah. we think we covered a lot of ground. I got to get <laughs> off here because I got to get ready to go to no, work. No, no worries. Yeah. You know, that's, I think that's the problem. We could probably talk forever about this stuff. For I'm sure. a, well, we'll I'm just do it again. Nerd. After I yeah, read the book, I'll, I'll have you back on, man. I, I, I love talking with you and I really appreciate you doing this. And um, your yeah. book is debating the drug war. And um, you can, I bought mine on Amazon because I didn't have my credit card with me when I was looking at your site. And I was like, I'm just lazy. So I just went on Amazon and recorded. <laughs> But do you recommend getting it from your website? Is that better for you? I would say the best way to get it is either bookshop.org is a really great resource because they source their books through like local bookshops, local independent booksellers. Okay. Um, or you can get it through rutledge.com. My personal website is michaelrosino.com. You can see me on uh, Twitter. I post a lot of stuff about race and politics and drug policy. And that's just my name at Michael Rosino. So. Yeah, no, and if anyone wants to reach out to me uh, on Twitter, you know, anything like that, if anyone's interested in, in collaborating or anything, you know, I'm always up for that. So, yeah, I know. And, and Aaron, thanks again for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. We'll definitely do it again. It was great talking to you. Sounds good. All right. All you right. too. All right. Bye. All right. Take care. All right. Peace, Nicks. Thanks for listening. Again, the website that he recommended buying his book at is bookshop.org. It's also available on Amazon. It's Debating the Drug War by Michael Rosino. Follow him on Twitter, at Michael Rosino. And if you like what we're doing here, go on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, the Peace on Drugs podcast. And if you want to subscribe to our newsletter, go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe. And don't forget, if you want to try a hemp cigarette that doesn't taste like shit, it's a great substitute for tobacco. And go to sugarcali.com, enter the offer code PEACE15 for 15% off. And if you like Kratom, if you enjoy Kratom, I like Kratom and I enjoy Kratom and I really like this company, Happy Hippo Herbals. If you don't know what Kratom is, I might not be talking about this for you. You can look into it. It is an opiate. It is... Um, there are so many things I'm not supposed to say and can say because it's not FDA approved that I'd like to just tell my listeners to do their research. I do enjoy Kratom. It is an opiate. It is a non-morphine derivative opiate. It reacts on our opioid receptors, but it's only a partial agonist. So it is, in my opinion, much safer than, for, for instance, the street drugs that could be the alternative for opiates. But 
If you want to try some Kratom, go to happyhippoherbals.com. Enter the offer code THEPEACE15 for 15% off. Thank you so much for listening. Let's hand it over to Twiggy Branches. Peace out. 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 What you can't.